This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Certainly good to see everybody this morning. As I was um, preparing the lesson, uh, I was thinking about uh, something Brother David mentioned in his prayer, and that is that we live in a stressful world, don't we? Every day uh, we deal with some issue, and then it seems another one comes up. Sometimes we have a reprieve by the grace of God. And it's during those times of refreshing that we oftentimes hope, well, I sure hope the worst is past. And, you know, we hope that those trials that we face, they're in the rearview mirror and that the journey is going to get better. Somewhere inside, though, we know that there's more that's going to come, right? And it can easily fill us with stress, anxiety, even dread. When we studied the church in Smyrna, we saw Jesus affirm that Despite the terrible trials that they had already faced, they were going to have even more terrible ordeals yet to come. There would be loss, there would be imprisonment, there would even be death. And Jesus didn't tell them he was going to take those things away. I'm sure they wished that he would have. What he told them is that they needed to be faithful until death, and in return, he was going to give them a crown of life. And that promise is one that he has made to you and I as well. There are countless scriptures that we could look at that speak to us about how to understand this concept, and there's endless verses that give us perspective on what to do in those times of trial. There's a stream of encouragement that exists in the Bible with the promise of a great and valid hope. That hope is what we have in Jesus. You know, the entire book of Job is dedicated to showing us just how far God is willing to allow Satan to go to test his children with the promise that... God will never give us more than we're able to bear. Now, while we stumble and we fall during these times, we also sometimes experience victories, don't we? There are so many lessons that we could unpack on these subjects. I don't have the time to do them this morning. It's my, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm, I'm a completionist. And when I start doing a lesson on these kind of things, I see all these things that we could be speaking about, and it's hard to focus sometimes. But what I want to point out this morning is there is a delineator between those times where we feel dread and despair and when we feel peace and comfort. And that delineator is faith. Not faith in our abilities to properly respond to God, but faith in the steadfast promises of God the Father, faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus, and faith in our faithful helper, the Holy Spirit. If we can only keep the faith. Not just faith in the tenets of our religion, but faith that it's all going to be well. Faith that all these trials are going to pass, something good is coming, it's going to be well worth it. If we can just do that, then we can truly have peace, even when despite our positive actions maybe to adversity, it seems like the trials get worse rather than better. The truth is this, greater adversity comes to those whom God loves. You know, it's not that God takes joy in seeing us hurt. It's that we're so precious to him that he wants us to shine. He wants to burn away the impurities from us like he burn away dross from gold. 
You know, if you think about something that is so desirable and precious to you, like gold, you know, you don't want anything bad on it. You want everybody to see the good things, even those that may be hidden. And that's how God views us. You know, he loves us so much. I want you to be thinking about Job. He's so proud of his creation. He loves us so much that he wants even Satan to acknowledge what a good thing that he has in us. We were good enough that he gave his son to die for us. And that's why God challenged Satan to test Job. But we have to have faith during those times of trial, especially during those times when our strength seems weak. God is well pleased when we remain faithful and we keep our eyes on Jesus, even when it seems everything in life is seeking to shut those doors that Christ opened for us. And so we come to the church in Philadelphia. I'd like to uh, turn and read our text this morning. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, he that shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Philadelphia, <clears throat> the sixth of the seven churches that we're studying, was located about 28 miles southeast of the last church we looked at, Sardis. It was founded in 189 B.C. by Adelus Philadelphus, for whom it was named. And the belief is it was named such because of the love between him and his brother, the king of Lydia. Its modern Turkish name is Alashir, which means the city of God or the exalted city, and Philadelphia has actually received many different names throughout history. It's guarded, or it guards and uh, commands an important pass through some mountains there. Uh, there's the Hermas and Meander Valleys, and the officials of that city, they were effectively the gatekeepers of, of all the mail and the trade that passed between the east and the west. Now, Christ contrasts this with his authority over a much more important spiritual door to which he alone holds the key. I'd like to look at the description Jesus gives for himself. He says that he is holy, he is true, he has the key of David. There are two significant characteristics of Christ noted here, holy and true. To be holy is to be blameless and pure, and because Jesus is holy, he cannot lie. Therefore, he's both holy and true. Hebrews 7.27 tells us that Jesus is able to open the door to God 
as our high priest, specifically because he is holy, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And Jesus says in 14, John 14, verse 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. He's the only one that can open the door to riches and communication with God, just as Philadelphia was the only one that communication through mail and the riches of trade could be realized between the East and the West. And because of these things, the church at Philadelphia could trust what Jesus was about to say to them completely. And as far as the key of David goes, it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where he says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. A key is a means of locking and unlocking a door, yes, but what does that mean for you? It means that you are being given opportunity, or it's being withheld from you. And so it's a symbol of power and authority. The key of David had the means to open opportunity with God, but since the year 605 B.C., when Israel's last independent king, Jehoiakim, was dethroned by Nebuchadnezzar, the house and throne room of David was locked. We know that God didn't speak for centuries to the children of Israel. Well, God declared that the key of David would be taken away from them until he would later give it to Jesus in Ezekiel chapter 21, verses 25 through 27. And this is just another great example of why the Old Testament is not negated. If you hear someone say the Old Testament doesn't matter, they are sorely mistaken. It is fulfilled in the New Testament. Furthermore, Christ, you know, this key, he can open doors, but he can also use that key to shut out his enemies and by extension, our enemies. Revelation 3, verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. There happen to be several doors that Christ alone can open and shut. Revelation 1, verse 18, he has the keys to the door of death and life. Revelation 4, verse 1, he has the keys to the very throne room of God, the most holy place in heaven. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he has the keys to effective spreading of the gospel. Of equal importance, though, is that there is no man that can shut a door which Christ has opened. You see, the Philadelphians were under attack by certain Jews who were trying to close that door to them unless they adopted all the tenets of Judaism and came under the law. I'd like to examine these men who would shut the door. Verse 9 of our text, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. A very defining feature of Philadelphia, and I've mentioned this with several of the churches, was that they experienced earthquakes. And Philadelphia in particular experienced probably more earthquakes than any of the other cities in the region. They were also in constant danger of spiritual earthquakes. And that, those earthquakes threatened to shake apart the foundation of their faith and the assurance of their salvation. And until Jesus came, being an ethnic and religious Jew was understood as necessary to be called God's people. And there were many Jews who jealously guarded that status. They rejected the idea that one could have access to God without submitting to and becoming one of the Jews under the Old Testament law as a proselyte. The Jews bitterly 
persecuted those of their nation who became Christians and treated them as outcasts of Israel's of Israel. They were put out of the synagogue and excluded from the temple and its services and even from the city of Jerusalem. The effect was that you had men who were trying to shut the door of opportunity to have peace with God and all that entails. Now, quick note here. We're talking about the Jews, but these Jews were Christians. If your focus is on the nation of Israel or secular Jews who deny Christ, your focus is in the wrong place. These were Christians who were attacking other Christians. And they were trying to tell them that in some way or the other, the work of Christ and the grace of God was insufficient for them without something additional that they did. That is the message we must take from this, not that we need to convert to Judaism. Granted, that was their immediate concern, but you have to remember that the early church worshiped in synagogues. The early church was comprised entirely of Jews. There wasn't a single Gentile there until Peter and Paul later on received their missions to, uh, to spread the gospel to them. So when we talk about the synagogue of Satan, there's no room for anti-Semitism. What we're talking about here is anyone, specifically a so-called fellow Christian, who would in some way shake your faith or your assurance of, found, uh, of uh, salvation. The promise here, though, is that God is going to allow the church to prevail against such enemies. Those who deny that the New Testament message is that God loves the whole world and has made a way for Gentile and Jew alike to be saved under a new covenant, one that would not erase the old one that the Jews had, but it would fulfill it and complete it in a way that simply was not possible without the Messiah, Jesus. So there were two concerns here. <clears throat> you had the Jews who were tenacious about the idea that we should not be casting out any of God's eternally spoken law. And secondly, you had the Gentiles who were under the new covenant and they had been invited to God for the first time, invited to be his people, and yet they were being told that that's not really true, that this is still just a repackaging of the same old thing as before, the law. Now, there are some today, as I've said, who will say the law was cast aside and therefore, you know, the Gentile concern prevailed over the Jewish concern. But that really isn't accurate. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass. Has heaven and earth passed? Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, which are the marks on the page in Hebrew, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Is everything in the Old Testament fulfilled? No, it is not. From the Jews' perspective, the Gentiles were trying to throw out certain aspects of the law like dietary uh, rules, sacrifices, the Sabbath, and so on. But the truth is those things weren't thrown out. They were fulfilled. Anything in the Old Testament that appears to have passed away, to no longer be relevant, was not thrown out. God didn't change his mind. He didn't rescind it. He fulfilled it. Let me give you an example. Why don't we observe the Sabbath on Saturday? <clears throat> it's because Christ is our rest. We celebrate that on the day he rose from the dead, the first day of the week or Sunday. On this day, we're reminded of and participate in the glorious reality that we have already entered into God's rest. Hebrews 4 verse 10 says it explicitly. For he that has entered into his rest 
He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. We are actively completing and obeying the Sabbath law in following and accepting Christ. there, There is no question about it. There is no room for a separate Sabbath observance because Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our eternal rest. It's eternally fulfilled. Its original purpose is complete. And so we don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and we don't have to be a Torah observer. In fact, we would be wrong if we did. Now we await the experience of the fullness of this rest in eternity and the new heavens and the new earth that's spoken of in detail in Revelation 21 and 22. So you see, the Sabbath requirement, it didn't pass away. It was just fulfilled as Jesus said it would be in Matthew 5, verse 18. So does this mean that God disowned all of the Jews? You'll hear this a lot. One of the most jarring events in my life was when one of my very close relatives expressed to me that they did not like the Jews because they were Christian. I I struggled to wrap my mind around it because God has not cast aside the Jews. We have not usurped the Jews' place. We have been grafted into that tree. Now, some of them have been pruned off, but that tree is still there, and we were grafted into a pre-existing tree. What's the tree? The Jewish people. That's why we're told that a Jew without Christ is not a true Jew, but a Jew or Gentile with Christ is a true child of God. A Jew can be a spiritual Israelite just as a Gentile can be a spiritual Israelite, and together they jointly make up God's people. Those Jewish men who called themselves the true children of God to the Philadelphians but said Gentile Christians were not, they were rebelling against Christ. They were anti-Christ. And if someone is against Christ, they are instead for Satan, whether they Acknowledge it or not. That's why Christ said that they were of the synagogue of Satan. Large portion of my life, I thought this kind of teaching on this didn't matter anymore. I thought we were past all of this. But you need look no further than the Middle East today to understand, and our own nation, that it's not gone. People were murdered on October 7th in a brutal attack on the Jewish people because they're Jews. And what did Americans do? They celebrated in the streets. Filthy, disgusting behavior. It's still here. It's still here. Christ powerfully proclaims that men like this, men who would, to the Philadelphians, try to shut the door of opportunity, whether to the Jew or the, or the Gentile, the door of opportunity that Jesus has opened, those men will someday be driven to their knees at the feet of the saints, and they will be forced to acknowledge that God loves you and I. He loves the Jew. He loves the Gentile. We are all his people if we come to him through Christ. God has made a way for everyone to become a part of the family of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. So the synagogue of Satan... And your life may not be a Torah-observing Jew, as it was for the Philadelphians, but it may be someone who claims the status of Christian, who claims the status of child of God and tries to deny that to you. Now, 
Verse 10 of our text says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Your translation may have a different wording. I always use the King James Version. It says, The word of my patience. And what this refers to is Christ's command to all of us to endure. It was originally given to the apostles in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And you may recall that Jesus commanded his apostles to teach and observe all that he had commanded with the understanding that he was with them until the end of the age. In Matthew 10, verse 16, Christ had also warned that he was sending them out as sheep amidst the wolves. And for that reason, they had to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There was to be no self-serving agenda found among them. They were simply to wisely obey Christ and in gentleness and humility persevere all the way to the end of the age when Christ will return. Uh, many of you know I work with Clint and his brokerage. And the reason why I chose to do that was because of something that he told me once. He said he had a vision to create a brokerage in which we would be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and we would use it as a ministry. That was very appealing to me. When you think about a serpent and a dove, that comparison is pretty uh, striking, isn't it? On the one hand, a serpent is very often an enemy. It's wise enough to hide, studies its environment to find the best place to be and to catch its food. It's got a keen understanding of its surroundings, which allows it to be a predator usually and not the prey, right? But a snake is not something most of us like, is it? I mean, the picture's a little squashed there, but that's a snake up there that manages to look like a cluster of bananas so that it can catch its prey. Doves and pigeons, on the other hand, if you didn't know, a dove and a pigeon are of the same species, so they're almost interchangeable. Since ancient times, those birds have maintained an intricate, practical relation with humans. They deliver mail for us. They eat out of our hands. They cluster on the ground around us. You can feed them. A dove is so gentle and humble that it coexists in the middle of all men. When's the last time you saw a vulture do that? Oh, you may see a vulture try to land in the middle of all men, but if it's trying to tear apart a body and eat carrion in your midst, you're going to kick it out, right? Vulture's destructive and it's nasty. Its behavior is nasty. But a dove or a pigeon despite all their good qualities, can be too trusting and careless. Their danger sense is low enough that they're often the prey to something else like a snake. So these two animals are very different indeed, but if you combine their strengths, you have a gentle wisdom in an approachable person who's both aware of their self and their environment such that they can exist anywhere and thrive. On the board, I've got a saying, uh, if a man is as wise as a serpent, he can afford to be as harmless as a dove. And that is very true. The church in Philadelphia had performed admirably in this respect. Their faith had never wavered. And you know, the tenacity of their character manifested in other ways as well. As I already stated, the Philadelphians were subject to frequent and severe earthquakes. There's a historian called Strabo, Strabo something. He was astonished that a city should have ever been founded in such a place. And he questioned, frankly, the sanity of the people for remaining there. He was known to say that he felt like 
like when people are driven from a city because of constant earthquakes, well, they ought to be wise enough not to go back. And yet every time the Philadelphians went back to the city to rebuild, Strabo went on to say that literally every day the walls of the houses were opening up with holes in them. Different parts of the city were always experiencing damage. And so the effect was that the citizens lived there in constant dread of quaking earth and falling buildings, but it simply was not in their character to give up and quit. And they had the same attitude about their faith. It's precisely because of their enduring faith, even though they were just increasingly a remnant of the growth the first century church had originally seen. In spite of that, they kept the faith, and so Jesus said, I'll keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them to dwell upon the earth. And you know what? The steadfastness of that church was a good thing as well because of what we see in the next verse of our text, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. There's a very important point of view here that we must catch. We are not called to endure because the journey will be long. We are not called to endure because the journey will be long. We're called to endure because the journey's end is imminent, any day. And it will arrive abruptly. You know, it's tricky because the journey sometimes becomes difficult enough that to take even a step feels like an eternity, right? We often say, the years fly by, but sometimes the days and the moments drag. So you see, it's just an illusion. Time is not dragging. And more importantly, that feeling that we sometimes get that a trial that we're experiencing will never end, or that we can't bear a trial because it's going to go on for too long, the fact is the journey is brief, and the trial, well, it's rapidly coming to an end. James 4, verse 14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I think it was Dane that just recently said that the only way to find peace is to live in the moment. Or maybe that was Kalen. I, you know, I don't know who said it. What, we have so many wise men in this congregation. You can't look at the past because you'd be filled with regret. You can't look to the future because you'd be filled with dread and anxiety. But if you just live in the present, you will experience peace and be able to take joy in what you have. You know, there is a basic truth in life that the less experience you have in it, I thought of David. I was like, what would David say? And this is what I came up with, brother. The less experience you have in life, the simpler and longer it seems. But as you grow older and you endure, you don't continue to feel that it's so easy to navigate life as you did when you were young. And you seem to have too little time to complete the journey in the way that you desire. The Bible tells us that the journey of life is short and the narrow or the correct way. It's hard to find. And it's even harder to stay on. But you've only got a short amount of time to navigate life's challenges. And the stress of that will be real. But our faith must endure. 
until the rapidly approaching end. The patient endurance of the saints will soon be rewarded, we're told. In the meantime, they have to hold fast that which they have received until deliverance comes. There is no reward for the quitter. The crowns of victory depend on the keeping of the word of Christ's patience to the very end. The admonition that no man take thy crown can be compared to an athletic contest, only this is a contest for your soul. Christ provides each of us a crown of victory in him, but Paul wrote, let no man beguile you of your reward in Colossians 2.18. You know, just like a champion of any sport experience, there's always an adversary trying to take away your victory. The Greek and Roman athletes who gained crowns or wreaths of victory, they made every effort to keep others from taking them away from them in subsequent contests. And so you're given your crown of victory from the moment you accept Christ, and then you're going to spend the rest of your life in contests with this world, with Satan, with demons, with other people who effectively are trying to take your victory from you. And Paul says, don't you let some man trick you into giving up your reward. As we said when we studied this passage in Colossians, the Christian must maintain his hope in Christ or lose a spiritual reward. There is nothing that can share space in your heart with the hope that you place in Jesus Christ. Else, you'll find you have no real hope at all. But if our hope in Christ endures, there is something wonderful coming indeed. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 3. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from God. And I will write upon him my new name. The overcomer is to be made a permanent pillar in the temple of God. A pillar is a symbol of dignity, beauty, permanence, stability, strength, the picture I've got on the board is of Solomon's temple. And in that temple, on the front there, were two brazen pillars 30 feet in height. One was called Yachin, meaning he shall establish. The other is called Boaz, which means in its strength. And one person elaborates on this promise that was made in this way. He, you and I, who is made a pillar in the God's temple, shall be one of the great and beautiful stones upon which others rest. But you shall be so placed that you cannot be removed while the whole thing stands. In Philadelphia, there still stands a column. It's a lone pillar. It never failed. It has stood for so many years like a sentinel amid the ruins of the ancient city. What a beautiful symbolism of the promise of Christ that I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will not fall. You will endure forever. When those frequent earthquakes I previously mentioned would occur, the Philadelphians, they often fled to the open country. And they would live in tents or booths in order to keep themselves beyond the range of disaster. Now, camping for a day or two is fun, but I bet those men that just came back from that trip would tell you that they appreciated their bed when they came home and the roof over their head, the warmth, the food, the family. Imagine if every other day you were running out into the field setting up a tent just so that you could keep your, from <laughs> your house falling in on you. That's the environment these Philadelphians lived in. And that's why Strabo thought they were crazy.
You know, Christ, he took the knowledge that this is the way the Philadelphians lived, and he used it to encourage his people. He gave them the promise that if they remained faithful, that one day they would enter the new Jerusalem, a new city. This is the city of God, and there they could dwell safely and never have to go out again. Just as a pillar cannot be moved as long as the building stands, the Christian who endures shall go no more out of the city of God. Triumph is permanent. The safety is eternal. The city of God is not once ever going to be shaken, and we are never going to cease to feel safe and secure there. Now, if that sounds good, there's even more. Christ said there's going to be a ceremony of names. Philadelphia, as I've said, was a city of many new names. When the city was destroyed by the great earthquake of AD 17, Tiberius gave the equivalent of $600,000 to help rebuild, and in appreciation, the citizens changed the name of the city to Neo Caesarea in his honor. Then, during the reign of Vespasian, the name was again changed to Flavia, since he was the first of the Flavian family to rule. And as it relates to pillars, important writings were engraved on the pillars of ancient temples, and especially the names of the emperors who built them and to whom they were dedicated. These pillars were erected to rulers and generals with testimonies of their accomplishments chiseled upon them. Christ is our emperor. Christ is our general. And one day, the same thing is going to happen to the victorious Christian. Christ says we're going to be like a pillar upon which he inscribes the name of God, the name of God's city, and then Christ's own new name. Now, we're not talking about our new name that we're going to receive on a white stone. We're talking about Christ's own new name that describes the victory he's achieved. It's going to be etched on us for all eternity. Why is that? Well, it's God's stamp of approval. He claims us. He owns us. We are his, and we have rights to citizenship in his great city. We are unequivocally associated with the ultimate rulers and the governing center of the universe throughout all eternity, as one commentator puts it. So as we uh, begin to conclude, I want to say that the message to Philadelphia can be summarized in the following way. Christ has called the church to survive in a place that is prone to devastating tumult. There will be spiritual earthquakes. Our comfort and security will seem fickle at times, and yet this is where God wants us. It's a life of tests and trials. God has called his people to endure even the most trying test with the promise of 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. You know, it's natural and good <clears throat> to long for peace, prosperity, joy, and contentment. Indeed, it's necessary for us to long for such things. If the church is a spiritual building and each individual is a spiritual brick with Christ as the chief cornerstone, what happens when we pick at certain bricks? If we focus on things that are destructive, 
We can't focus on the things that are destructive. We can't focus on the wrong thing because when we do, we're picking apart at the individual bricks that make up the entire structure and Christ would not have us to do that. He said he's not going to allow that to happen. So let's not even try. Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Assume the best. Do not consider the worst. Whether it's in your life, whether it's in your relationships, whether it's in your future, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Assume the best, not the worst. Focus on the good, not the bad. The bad's not going anywhere. You'll still be called to address it. The Bible outlines how we go about doing that. But don't fixate on it. Focus on the good. This should be a principle we live by, and it should govern how we interact with each other in the church. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10 tells us to resist the fears and pressures of this life that Satan pushes upon us by humbling ourselves. Humble yourself daily. Most trials can be traced back to one of two things. You're doing so good that a trial comes, or in your lack of humility, a trial comes. Humble yourself. Peter also says that we need to choose the joy of the Lord. He reminds us that the same kind of suffering that we experience are being experienced by brothers and sisters all over the world. But a common trick of Satan is to make you think it's only you, that it's unfair, that it's unjust, that it's not right. And maybe it's not. It wasn't fair for Job, was it? But after we've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, this is Peter talking, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The reward we're promised is going to be well worth it. John recorded just a glimpse of God's magnificent city in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. He says, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's going to be wonderful, indescribable bliss. Is your life shaking right now? Endure it. Is the fear of having to run, hide, and seek safety filling your heart with dread? You endure that too. Is something like the synagogue of Satan tearing at the assurance of your salvation? They're lying to you. Don't you listen to them? Endure your trials, for that is all they are. Temporary hardships that will pass. He that is holy and true 
and who cannot lie has promised it. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Are you ready to get out of the tent and into the temple that can never be shaken? There's only one way. You have to confess and repent of your sins. You have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You have to submit to him. You have to call upon him to forgive your sins. Then you obey him. You submit yourself to the waters of baptism and you receive remission of sins. Behold, I come quickly, he said. If you need to be baptized, you cannot, you cannot afford to wait. You dare not wait. I say this every time. Because in the moments that you are struggling with your hesitation for whatever reason, that may be the moment that he comes back. And when he comes back, it will be too late. So whether you're already his child and you find yourself troubled by the quakes or whether you need to be baptized, we stand ready to help you through prayer, counseling, and study of his word. If there be one of either case, we ask you to come have a seat on the front bench as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.